All right, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to make it down to verse 9. So verses 1 through 9. And the title is Darkness in the Last Days. Paul's going to give a description in, of the last days of what it will be like. It's, and you know it quite well, actually. We're going to read a description. You go, yeah, I know this place. It's where I live. I mean, not your house, but just the world you live in. And uh, so he's going to give a, a description. We'll talk about what the last days are. We'll talk about a general statement. We're going to get into the details. He's going to give 19 or 20 different descriptors of the last days, depending on how you count them. We're not going to go through each one in detail, but we will note each one. So there's a closing or there's an exhortation in here for us as well is that we need to make certain that we are not becoming a part of this, that we are turning away from those that live like this. So let's go ahead and begin reading those verses, verse 1 down to verse 9. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into household and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these who also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. So let's move back to verse 1, and let's talk about a definition of what we mean by the last days. It's that period of time that began when Jesus ascended to heaven and will go through the time of his second coming. That's a pretty long period of time, and we find ourselves in those days. So this is, if, really, it's a, it's a part of the church age, the majority of the church age. So Jesus ascended to heaven, that began the last days, and then all the way up until his second coming. Here's one passage that kind of helps us to, to place the last days in that time period. Acts chapter 2, verses, verse 17 says, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says, last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. So Peter's given an explanation of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that happened on the day of Pentecost. And in that, he quotes from Joel, who says that, this is something that will take place in the last days. We're still in this time period of God pouring out his spirit upon all flesh. And so that is one verse that talks about us being in the last days now. You can also um, look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, where it refers to uh, Jesus uh, being manifested and how God has spoken to us in these last days through his son, Jesus Christ. So the, the, the life of Jesus Christ um, the last days. We are still living in those last days. Now, I know that a lot of times we think of last as in we're, you know, the last few, like there's only a couple left. But the last days description 
is more of a reference to the fact that nothing else needs to happen in order for God to wrap everything up. So prior to the coming of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection and ascension, there were things that had to happen before we would get into the last days, before the kingdom would be set up um, upon the earth, before um, he would come back for us. He had to come first of all. And so those things had to happen. But after Jesus ascended to heaven, there is now nothing that needs to take place in order for the Lord to return. And so right now, the Lord can come back. We believe and teach in the imminent return of Christ, that he could come back at any moment. There is nothing else that needs to be fulfilled. Now, praise the Lord, he's still harvesting. He's still bringing people into the fold. And I'm glad that the Lord waited, right? We're glad that he didn't come back 100 years after or even 20 years after he ascended, because none of us would be a part of the, the, the plan in the kingdom of God. And so we can rejoice in the, the patience and the long-suffering of God, <clears throat> waiting for people to come to repentance. And I know many of you are part of that number. But there is nothing else that needs to happen. The Lord will continue to tarry, and people will continue to come to faith. But there will come a time when the Lord will say, that's it, that's the number. That's the number that's been predetermined. So there's nothing that needs to happen in order for the Lord to return. Um, yeah, so I mean, I could get off into a lot of different places here, but let me just say a couple of, of, of things about the last days. Uh, this is why I am actually, I believe, in a pre-tribulation rapture, is because if I believe in a post-tribulation or a mid-tribulation rapture, there are more things that have to happen before he can return. Just quite candidly, if you believe in a post-trib rapture, and that, in other words, it's going to be at the end of the tribulation, then the Lord's going to come back. There are a lot of things that you know that need to take place by reading the book of Revelation before he returns. You cannot say the Lord is about to return today. I'm the Antichrist. The abomination has to t of desolation has to take place first. And so um, there are those many events. Read the book of Revelation. All of that would have to happen if you hold to an end of the tribulation, post-tribulation uh, view of when the Lord returns. I believe it can happen at any time, at any moment. I think this is also the reason why we need to be so careful as those who believe in the imminent return of Christ is that we don't put up certain events as signs of fulfillment that the Lord is about to come. We've got to be careful. There are things that are going to happen at Christ's second coming, and we may be seeing the stage behind the curtain, right, being set up and everything's being put into place, and we can say, wow, things are getting ready for the second coming. But signs for the rapture, if you believe in a pre-trib rapture, here's the news flash. There are no signs for that. There are no signs. And so I think sometimes... A lot of times, in our zeal for seeing that they we're drawing close to the to return of the Lord, we'll say, hey, this is a sign of the rapture. Not if you believe in a pre-trib rapture, because there's nothing that has to happen. You're already in those last days, and there's nothing more that needs to be fulfilled for that kingdom to be started. So we gotta, we got to be cautious here. But really, that this is more of a description. Well, it is a description, not more of. It is a description of what the days will be like between the two comings of the Lord, or at least his ascension and his second coming. 
And it's, it's a dark description. It's not happy news. Um, and so we'll read through that and we will see. So in general, the last days are described in this way. Two points. They're marked by difficult and dangerous days. He says there in verse 1 that perilous times will come. Are dangerous, harsh, fierce, savage. All of these are synonyms for um, the word perilous. That's the way our days would be. Um, so it's dangerous, it's difficult days. The other thing that we read is that um, they're going to come. So this is, it's, again, it's not going to get better and better as things are going to get worse and worse in the last days. Again, if you have some views believe that no, actually it's the exact opposite. That things are going to get better and better and better until finally this world and the governments of this world and society is shaped up and molded that it would be fit and worthy of a king like Jesus to come back. And then he will come back to a, 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 a reign of Christendom upon the world and over the earth and now he will come back and he will do this. You, you know, it's this kingdom now theology. Things are going to get better and better and better. Um, and, you know, there are times in history um, where that became a popular thought because of what was going on, revivals that are going on, awakenings that were going on, and, and just you could look in the world and see what was taking place. But, you know, you look at the world now and you probably don't feel that way because you look and say things are, things are getting worse. I don't think they're, I mean, I don't care how much you're committed to that theology. Nobody's going to look at the last two years and say, things have gotten so much better for the church and for Jesus Christ. I mean, you look at the world and say, man, it is getting worse and worse. But so that is a view. But this is what I want us to know. As although I believe the Bible talks about it getting worse and worse, Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? That's not better, that's worse. And I could go through many descriptions of how things are going to get you know, worse. Uh, Paul talked about how there'll be an apostasy in the last days. Not, not something getting better and better. That being said, God still breaks through in his mercy and his grace. And in his sovereignty, he pours out his spirit at certain places and times. And many people get saved. It can be maybe a local thing in a particular congregation. And you know, the families and the communities that are associated with that they end up receiving salvation. And it's like a breakthrough of light. Sometimes there's other events, like the, the first and second great awakening, or the Welsh revivals, or even what happened in the 60s and 70s to some degree, of how so many people came to faith. And there's these breakthroughs where God shows mercy despite the general statement that it's perilous times. So we have the hope and we live and we labor for those moments. Whether they come or not is not in our hands. It is the sovereign will of God when he pours out his spirit. But we labor and we serve so that if he does, that we might be a part of that. And um, I, we pray for that. And I think that is absolutely and right in, to pray for the Lord to pour out his spirit. But know that what we're about to read is a description of really what the days are going to be like. So that's a general description. Now the specific description comes in verses 2 through uh, 9. And again, 19 characteristics of the conduct of men who will be present in the last days, that time period in which we are now living. And the first one on the list is that they'll be lovers of self. That this is going to be what will describe the mentality of people on the earth 
um, in the last days. They will love themselves. Now, biblical love is choosing the highest good for another person. If you want a definition for love, obviously, 1 Corinthians 13 gives you a beautiful, lengthy description of what love is. But if you want a real short, usable um, definition for love, choosing the highest good for another person. That's, that's what love is, biblical love. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. So biblical love is what does everybody else need around me? What's touching them? What's impacting them? What's affecting them? But the mentality that he says will be present will be the I love myself. Now say, you know, in the 80s, it was, you know, man doesn't love himself enough. Yeah, the Bible says no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. The Bible says not that we, the problem is not that we love ourselves too, too little, but that we love ourselves too much. And so there's this self-serving mentality um, that is, is prevalent in the days in which we live. And so people make choices that serve themselves and it hurts and it harms other people. So we know what it is, what the good things are we should be choosing for one another. We got a Bible. We have the Spirit of God who dwells within us and uh, you know, giving us understanding of these scriptures to know this is choosing the good. This is choosing the best thing for other people. And I think we need to know that because sometimes the world and individuals, people in our own family will say, if you really love me, you will let me do this or you will support me and you will approve of my choices. But those choices are choices that put themselves in direct conflict with God and actually could lead them into uh, eternal judgment of the Lord. And we cannot stand back and, and applaud that. But they're going to force you to try and do that. They're going to say, if you really love me, you'll do that. No, that's not what love is. Love is choosing the highest good. Love is not applauding twisted decisions to please self. Love is saying, you're following the Lord. I want to serve you. I want to meet your needs and put that first. That is the right thing to do. And you're going to have to just, you're just going to have to stand firm in this. You're going to have to stand strong. Because I don't think that we're going to find that it gets easier. I think we're going to find that it gets harder. So the description is lovers of, of self. But we are to be lovers of men. We are to be lovers of God, right? We are to put the needs of others even before our own. You know, one area where this self-love so easily manifests itself is in marriages. You know, you'll never have a greater opportunity to die to yourself in what you want than in marriage. Now, that's not bad. That's good. Because Jesus said, if you really want to find out what living is for, go give yourself away. And when you get married, you have somebody you can give yourself away uh, to on a daily basis. But this is what it is. It's choosing the highest good for another person. And if you are self-centered, if you are a, a lover of self in marriage, I can assure you that other person is not happy in that marriage. They can still find contentment and joy in Christ, but they're not going to find it in the marriage. Because when people put their own needs in front of uh, other people, it, it, it becomes a difficult place in a difficult environment to live in. 
So husbands, serve your wife. Serve her. You are the chief servant. You know, well, she's supposed to submit to me. Okay, listen. First of all, the commandment that a wife should yield to her husband is not to the husband. It's to who? It's to the wife. And she is the one that's responsible to live that out. It is not your responsibility to help her live that out. Your job, your job description, and when you get 100%, then you can maybe have a conversation, is to give yourself away for her each and every day and serve her and put her first. That's what it is. And so when there's, not, when there's self-love in a marriage, that's the problem. Listen, I, I, I am certain that there are great marriages in here. There are marriages that are just starting out. There's marriages that have been here for decades. And maybe there is even some troubled marriages. Probably more in first service than second service. But, but you know what I'm saying, just for the sake of illustration. There might even be some troubled marriages here at second service too. And I'll, I'll tell you, if you want to correct that marriage... Stop loving yourself and put the other person first. Now, it takes two. Two people have to do that for the marriage to work. Marriage is 50-50. On those rare days, yes, you're right. But a lot of times, marriage is 70-30 or 30-70 or 90-10 or any other, you know, combination. It's a moving percentage. And there are certainly things that you can do, I do, that keeps me from being that all that I should be as a husband or my wife, all that she should be as a wife. But those don't destroy a marriage. But there are other things you can do that will destroy a marriage. And so you've got to, be, you've got to take responsibility for that and you've got to correct that. But if you want to fix your marriage, start loving that other person more than you love yourself. Put her, put him first. Forgive one another. And if he begins to love you today on the way home or throughout this day, don't throw it back in his face. Celebrate it and thank the Lord that he's heard your prayers. And the same goes for the husbands. If she, be, husbands, if she begins to be this woman, then celebrate it. Don't say, oh, heard a Bible study today, did you? That's not going to help, all right? That is not going to help the situation. Celebrate it. Thank them for that. Moving on, he says, lovers of money. Um, by the way, you don't have to have a lot of money to be a lover of money, do you? You can have no money and be a lover of money. Choosing the highest good for more money. And your whole life revolves around getting more money. And you live for it. You do everything you can to protect it and keep it and hold on to it for your own purposes. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may hold on eternal life. Isn't it great you can use money, a thing like money, for eternal purposes? It can, it can be a spiritual tool. And that's how we're commanded to do it. So, well, this, is a, this isn't for me. This is for rich people. I'm not a rich person. Okay, maybe you're not. But why don't you just define wealth on the basis of what the world has and doesn't have? 
In that case, if you have a house, if you have a car, if you have food in your cupboards, and you have more than one change of clothing, you would be in the rich category. And so we have been given much, and we are responsible. Don't be a lover of money. Don't. And listen, like, oh, I don't love money, but look at the way you live your life. If you were to, to look at the priorities of your life, what is prioritized? So this is a description of the last days. They're going to be lovers of self. They're going to be lovers of money. Um, they're going to be boasters. Um, and this is, this is just the braggers. I mean, the people that are just like going on and on about themselves. Um, and they're just they're drawing attention. And the, the next thing is very closely associated. There's actually three different descriptors we're going to find here of, of like prideful type of people. And, and it, so it's like boasters and then there's proud. Ostentationously proud. It's like, I am the greatest. You're like, well, I don't know if that's really what's going on. Uh, watch football today. You'll see it. And watch how people go about living their life. And there's this attention of themselves. And they believe it all revolves around them. And then it says blasphemers. We're still there in verse 2, about the middle of it. Blasphemers. Um, and this is slanderous, railing, um, reviling. You, you could do this against a person or you could do this against God. And he's going to talk about gossip in just a moment. So it seems to me like maybe he's thinking about this blasphemy, um, this reviling, not against a person, but against the Lord himself. And people are quick to revile God. They're quick to rail against God. The disrespect shown to the Lord, man, it's all around us. We see it at every turn in the world. They don't care what God has to say. They don't care where God is communicated through Scripture. Next thing on the list is disobedient to parents. You know, if you're one who's in that place where you are still under the authority of your parents and you are needing to follow their rules, then you need to do that. And here's what you don't need to do. You don't need to evaluate their wisdom and the rules they give. Now, if they're, not, if they're telling you to do stuff that's hurtful and harmful to you, like for real hurtful and harmful, or asking you to be disobedient to scriptures, then yeah, you've, you've got to have something. But if you just don't think the schedule, the, the, you know, the activities, what you're able to do or not to do are not good, this is not your position to step up and begin to critique them and, re, you know, and go over. You're the worst parent ever. I can't believe you. That's not your job. Your job is just to be obedient to them and submit to them. And you'll be amazed at what blessing will come upon your life and the way the Lord will, will bring a contentment into your life. If you are a child that's in rebellion against your parents, you're not going to have contentment because you are breaking one of the fundamental structures that God has established in the home. And you're going to be miserable. But you can, if you'll be, obey them, yeah, but they're just not very smart. God didn't ask you if your parents are smart. Obey them. He says to obey them. And, you know, one day when you become a parent and you have perfect knowledge of all things, 
Yeah, we're laughing because, you know, we, we were the, in that place. Then you can make those decisions and make no mistakes about your parenting. But you're going to find out that the guiltiest people in the world are Christian parents. <laughs> I could have done better. I should have done better. I could have done this. I could have done that. Did we do enough? And it's just like it's always right there. Hey, love the Lord and love your kids and lead them and, you know, do the best that, that you can in the power and the strength of the Lord. So this is a descriptor. Being disobedient to parents is a descriptor of those that are outside of the kingdom of God and how they live their life. He also says that they are, there's, what's going to mark these days are those that are unthankful. They're still in verse 2, the end of verse 2, unthankful. You know, the more you consume without thanksgiving, the more unhappy you'll become. You can't, if you're just like taking on more and more and more, and you're not taking the time to be thankful for it, this stuff is not going to bring you uh, a contentment in your life. It's going to keep you from being able to enjoy what you really do have. Understand that God is the one that has blessed your life. Understand that all good things come from the Lord. And, and learn to be a thankful person. Uh, turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 13. It's the last chapter in the book of Hebrews. So just turn to the right. It's right before James. Hebrews 13, verse 15. Talks about the opposite of unthankfulness. It talks about being thankful. And this is who we should be as, as followers of Jesus Christ. Coming into the week of Thanksgiving, it's appropriate for us to pause here a little moment and think about our thankfulness to the Lord. Therefore, by him, let us, what's the word? Continually, that's a lot, offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. We are to be those that are continually praising and giving thanks to the name of the Lord. Turn a few more pages over there. Um, go through James. Make your way into 1 Peter chapter 2. And we'll pick up at verse 4. I'm going to skip a few verses. You'll see it. But let's read verses 4 and 5 and verses 9 and 10 together. Coming to him as to a living stone. So coming to Jesus. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. A, think of a temple. A holy priesthood. For what purpose? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, we, we just read that one of our sacrifices we, we offer up is the fruit of our lips. Skip down to verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. For what? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Aren't you glad to be in the light? Aren't you glad to be set free from the power of sin? That he took you out of the, Aren't you glad to be a recipient of the mercy of God upon your life? Um, we were driving back yesterday from Tennessee on Highway 40. And of course, like most interstates, there's all kinds of debaucherous activities. Is that a word, debaucherous? I don't know. It's the debauchery that's all over, 
you know, and just driving by and, and you know, just like, we just comment, it's like, oh my gosh, and you just think about the, the enslavement that, that people have to some of these lifestyles and stuff, and just like, so glad that, to be free. But you know, just, just pondering, it's like, wow, these people that are just bound by this stuff. And I just, we just found ourselves saying, Lord, thank you that we are free, not controlled by the power of sin. It is a beautiful thing to be liberated. And we can be thankful about that. We of all people should hit Thanksgiving out of the park, right? The church of Jesus Christ, Christian homes, a believer. I mean, this is like what we do every day, all day anyways, is, is give thanks to the Lord. So now that we have the opportunity for Thanksgiving to roll around, it's just like, well, this is what we do all, all the time anyway. We should be the most thankful of all people, because we are saved and we know what the Lord has done for us. But what marks this world is an unthankfulness. You can even read in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, and that kind of long list of, of the downward spiral of the world. One of the things that you find in there is that they did not give thanks. They did not give praise to the Lord. A lack of praise on Thanksgiving is an indication that you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. Because those that are saved and redeemed will do this. You've been created for this. This is the purpose. And so if you as a believer have kind of allowed that, that discipline to get a little dusty on the shelf of your Christian life, great week to, to dust it off. And, and again, the more thankful you become, the more you will enjoy life. The more blessing you will have just take the time try try it this week to thank the lord for everything you own like everything or thank you for these forks i mean you, I mean, you you have a lot of stuff begin to think about all that god has given you think about what he's placing think about what he's given to you spiritually you couldn't it would get it would get really tedious wouldn't it if you were to begin to thank the lord for all of those things individually but think of the blessings. And as you become a praise, um, one who offers up praise, one who's offering up thanksgiving, when the fruit of your lips are continually giving you know, glory to the Lord, you're going to find so much more joy. Those that don't worship, those that don't give thanks, they are some of the most miserable people to be around. Become a worshiper. That's the language of heaven. We should be familiar with the last thing, and we see there in verse two is unholy, is living lives that are not set apart for the Lord. In verse three, um, unloving. So, like uh, lovers of themselves, they're unloving. They don't actually. This one has more the focus on how there's a lack of love being shown to other people, and then unforgiving. And um, actually, the idea here is that you cannot be persuaded to enter into a covenant. You're just resistant completely. And so somebody would try to come to you and make amends. Well, the world is such that they won't do it. They won't hear, I'm sorry. They won't hear, will you forgive me? You've crossed the line. You are of this kind, therefore you're done. And I think we need to be so careful in this you know, ever-increasing popular cancel culture that we don't pick that up in the church of Jesus Christ. We're the forgiving culture. Not, you know, oh, I didn't see what you did and we're going to hide our eyes from it. No, we'll, we'll call sin out 
And love will call you to repentance, and you call me to repentance. But then we forgive, and we move on. And I, um, I am just, you've heard me mention this a lot, but we see it in our culture. Don't pick it up. Don't allow it to become the way your marriage works, or how you treat your parents, or how you treat the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, if you read through the Bible, you're going to see a lot of people that messed up. Like almost everyone. I mean, there's a few you can read that, don't, that we don't have, you know, some example of where they messed up. You got Joseph. Okay, you're not going to have a real easy time finding something against him or Daniel. But, you know, most, almost everybody else in Scripture, Jesus aside, you're going to see their failures and you're going to see their mistakes. And yet God did not cancel them. What did he do to them? He redeemed them. We're not a cancel culture. We're a redemption culture. That is, we forgive people. Um, and this is actually what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 14 through 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father Forgive your trespasses. So if you're in the redemption culture, if you are a forgiven person, you will extend mercy and grace to other people as well. That's what you do because of all that you've received. And so in the world, though, it's quite different. It's unforgiving. It's, it's difficult uh, to ever make amends with people. They're unwilling to enter into a covenant into a peaceful agreement. And that's, uh, that's unfortunate, but we're not like that. At least that's not the way we're supposed to be. But we gotta work on that. We gotta work on that with each other because we can get so influenced by the culture or even our own feelings, our own hurts, and our own pains that we are unwilling to forgive. But we are to forgive. Um, what else do we find there? Not only unforgiving, but slanderers. Uh, diablos is the Greek word. It's where we get the word devil from. And Satan is what? He's the accuser of the brethren. So slanderers here um, is, is that same root word. Um, and those that gossip and accuse others of wrongdoing. It isn't saying confronting a sinner. It's just that you're a slanderer. You're talking about them. You're, you're, you're accusing that person. And we are not to be the accuser. That's Satan's job. Don't help him out. And so th this is an interesting thing, though. Because Satan is always making accusation against the church. And yet there is a place for the church to confront herself. In love and in grace and in truth to confront missteps, sinful things, you know, that have taken place and to, and to try to correct those. But then there's this place where we don't want to enter into of being a slanderer against the church or another brother or sister. We don't want to be an accuser, right? So we have to be mindful. We got to be thoughtful about how we approach this. And um, so deal with truth. Um, but be careful. It is so easy. And listen, I, I preach. I teach. I talk about us, the church. And I try to be really careful about how I characterize the church of Jesus Christ. Because it is 
at the end of the day, however clean or dirty her dress is, it is a bride of Christ. And uh, I, I, I don't know if I can even properly describe this, but I'm, I'm going to take an attempt. I think that the world is so rails against the church that a lot of times people, and I think it's a particular trap for um, younger people, to jump on in the whole social media realm and begin to pile on the church of Jesus Christ and begin to accuse her. No, confront her, not accuse her. There's a difference. So if you see something wrong in a person or with the church, then confront it for the purpose of restoration, which means, you know, you're not, you're not like out there airing it. And I just see so much of this. And I'm just like, why are we doing this to each other? Why are we doing this to, to Jesus? Confront it. The word of God tells us to do that. So um, if you're not doing that, then there ought to be an accusation against you for not confronting and only accusing. So we, we, we have to be mindful of this. And I was sitting in a, actually I've done this many times, where people are talking about the church, the church, the church is this and this and this and this. And she does this. She failed, she failed, she failed, she failed. And I, I was sitting there and it was an uncomfortable thing. But I, but I just couldn't sit there and I raised my hand. I go, can you give me an example of this? Well, this and this. I go, have you ever seen it? Well, no, I've never seen it. I said, well, I've been in the church my entire life. And I know what you're saying certainly has happened, but I've been in the church my whole life. I've been in all kinds of churches moving around as we did, and I never have once seen a church like what you're describing. Do you think it's possible that what you're saying is nothing more than repeating the accusation against the church that the devil is making? And the person was honest, you know what, I've got to go rethink this. It's not that the church is perfect. I mean, it's, she's not. But we got to be careful that we confront sin and that we don't become those that are doing the Satan's bidding. Does, it, does that make sense at all, the, the distinction? I don't realize it's a thin slice there, but I think we need to pay attention to it. We need to pay attention to it. I don't know, go read your posts and see if you're more of an accuser or a confronter of the church of Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, that's the bride of Jesus. And we don't want to be helping out Satan. But they're, they're slanderers. We move on into verse 3. I think we're into verse 3. Um, yes, without self-control, no constraints. Just everything is open. All things are possible. Uh, indulge your lust, your fantasies, your emotions, your sexual desires. And, and, and then we wonder why you know, crime is out of control and relationships are breaking down. It's because we're without self-control. But self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. If you walk in the Spirit, you're going to bear the fruits of the Spirit. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. If you say, I have no control over my life, I just do this, you're admitting that you're not a Spirit-filled believer. You have never been out of control while filled with the Holy Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit is a choice that we all make. Am I going to walk in the power of the Spirit? Brutal, um, this untamed, savage. And we think of how certain things have happened down through the ages and how men have treated other men. There's so many examples of that kind of brutality. Despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, just rash and reckless, not thoughtful in, the, in what a person does. 
Haughty, again, another kind of pride word. Lovers of pleasure, living for just what your flesh wants. Well, this is what pleases me. Well, deny it. Well, I can't deny myself. You want me to deny myself? No, Jesus does. And Jesus said, if you want to follow after me, take up your cross and deny yourself. It's a good thing to deny self rather than to indulge self. And then he says in verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying its power. So there will be those that are around the things of God and they, you would think they're a believer and yet the power of God has not touched their life or transformed it. And then the world looks at those that are in that group and he's going to talk about Janus and Jambres just in just a moment and they're like, we want nothing to do with that. And so there are those like that. But then we get an exhortation at the end of verse 5 to turn away from people who live like this. Preach to them, love them, call them to repentance, but do not embrace them as the people of your, your life. The, this is where you get your, your, um, your fellowship from. This is where you socialize. Um, obviously, we're in this world, and we got to interact with them, but we don't seek to live where they live. And then he gives a description of a problem that was going on at the church in, in the false teachers in verses 6 through 8. It says, For of this sort, those who creep into households or worm their way into household and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs, Janus and Jambres, was. I'm not going to take the time to go into all that I read about this, because to me it's just such a simple thing. People look at this, they see Paul was a misogynist. He, he was against women because he talks about gullible women. Okay, there are gullible women just like there are gullible men. And the circumstances he was dealing with, there was a group of gullible women that were being led astray by what kind of men? Men of corrupt minds. They were always trying to learn but could never come to the truth and that they will be judged. He talks about these two that found themselves, men that were worming their way in and finding women that were carried away in their lust and that this was something that was creating a bad situation. It's not a general statement of all women. Just like it's not a general statement of all men. Are all men of you know, corrupt minds? I mean, because if, if that's the way it's going to go. But just this argument that people like to bring up. He's talking about a specific sinful problem that was going on. Guess what? Women can sin and men can sin. Has anybody else noticed that besides Paul? I think we all understand this. But people will try to make so much of it. And then he refers to these two guys who were Pharaoh's magicians in the court when Moses was throwing down his staff and it was turning into a serpent. They threw down their staffs and it turned into a serpent. Finally, the exodus happened. And tradition is that these two guys went with the children of Israel out. And then when Moses was up on the mountain and there came the idea to build the golden calf, it was these two guys that were leading that rebellion. You don't read it in scripture. It's outside of scripture. But Paul makes reference to these that were leading people astray, just like Janus and Jambres. How good it is for us to be redeemed. Now he says, these people, their folly is going to be made manifest. They're going to come to an end and there will be a day of judgment for those who live like that. Now listen, as we've gone through this list, if you see this and you're like, wow, this 
kind of sounds more like me. Well, listen, then come to Christ and receive forgiveness of your sin and experience the power of God that will change you and transform you to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It is a glorious and wonderful thing to be forgiven of your sin. Jesus Christ went and he died on the cross. Why? Why did he die on the cross? Because this description, plus all the other things you could add to it, all sin was laid upon him. And the father poured out his wrath upon his son because he didn't want to pour out his wrath upon man for their sin. And so he was redeeming them. And he was forgiving them. Jesus became sin for us. And as we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we become what? The righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And we need that kind of righteousness to enter into heaven. The only hope for mankind who is like this, and so were we, is that we would come to Christ and allow him to change our life. That old things would pass away, and behold, all things would become new. If you have in your mind at all this thought, well, I've come to Christ, but I can still live in sin, you're, you're absolutely 100% deceived on that. The Bible says that you cannot do that. It doesn't mean that we arrive at sinless perfection in this life, but if you are content to walk with sin in your life because all Christians do that, you need to read 1 John. You need to read Romans chapter 6 if you want a shorter read. And you'll find that that is not the case. That there's a power of God. You don't want to be one that has a form of godliness, but has no power. And we all have met them. We've all seen people that are around the things of God, but their life is not changed. Because they've not received salvation. And if you are that person that needs to come to Christ, I would encourage you to come and be set free from this. And begin to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, that you might have eternal life. Because certainly, judgment is coming, but the Lord does not want to judge you. That's why he's waited this long. It's so that you could hear this message. You could have this moment right now to turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You may say, but I have questions. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> we all have questions. But you know enough. You know enough to come to Christ this morning. And begin to follow him and have a relationship. Here's the thing. When you enter into a relationship with the Lord, he's going to keep on talking to you. And he's going to show you more and more and more. And you'll get so many answers. You'll get the answers you need to live this life. Just a moment. We're going to share in communion as these elements of the bread and the cup come around. Hold on to them. And we will share together. Father, thank you for your word. We are glad, Lord, that you have redeemed us. We're glad, Lord, that you have set us free. We pray, Lord, that as we take these elements, you will remind us of the great price that you paid to liberate us. And we're grateful for it, Lord. We're, we're, we're so glad to be in the light. And we want to thank you for it. And if you are here and that one that needs to pray, then we encourage you right now where you sit to pray. Confess that you have sinned against the Lord and acknowledge that what Jesus did on the cross that he died and rose from the dead, is sufficient to forgive you, to cleanse you, and to give you the hope of eternal life. And he will receive you, and he will begin to change and transform the man or the woman that you are into something that is beautiful and glorious. Don't hold back. Come to Christ. You can trust him. He laid down his life for you.